Oldfold would remark, watching a party of laps encamped on the solid white wastes of the Neva, and receiving, on the scimitar of her crimsoned nose, a shower of snow from an overhanging caryatid. It was during these Siberian walks that Anna would meet other children who shared her exalted martyrdom, pint-sized princelings, diminutive countesses, muffled bankers' daughters clinging like clumps of moss to the granite boulders of their English governesses. Her adored cousin Sergei, for example, three years older than Anna, his face between the earmuffs of his shapka, pale with impending frostbite and outraged manhood as he trudged behind his intrepid Miss King along the interminable blood-red facade of the Winter Palace, or the blue-eyed, dimpled Kira Satayev, hardly bigger than the ermine muff in which she tried to warm her puffball of a nose. Yet it was during those Arctic afternoon excursions that Anna, piercing together the few remarks that the wind-buffeted Miss Pinfold allowed herself, became possessed of a country of little sunlit fields and parks that were forever green. A patchwork country, flower-filled and gentle, in which a smiling queen stood on street corners bestowing roses which miraculously grew on pins upon a grateful populace. A country without winter or anarchists, whose name was England. Anna grew, and nothing was too good for her. When she was seven, her father gave her, on her name day, a white and golden boat with a tasselled crimson canopy in which four liveried oarsmen rowed her on picnics to the islands. Each Christmas, one of Fabergé's craftsmen fashioned for her an exquisite beast so small that she could palm it in her muff. A springing leopard of lapis lazuli, a jade gazelle with shining ruby eyes... To draw her sledge through the park of Grasbaya, their estate on the Don, the Count conjured up two silken-haired Siberian yaks. "'You spoil her,' said Miss Pinfold, worrying to the Count. "'I may spoil her,' the tall, blonde-bearded Count would reply. "'But is she spoilt?' And the strange thing was that Anna wasn't. The little girl, wobbling on a pile of cushions on the fully extended piano stool to practice her etudes, gyrating obediently with her cousin Sergei to the beat of a polonaise at dancing class, or reciting Les Malheurs de Sophie to Mademoiselle Leblanc, showed no sign whatsoever of selfishness or pride. It was as though her mother's cosseting, the fussing of the servants, her father's limitless adoration, produced in her only a kind of surprised humility. Miss Pinfold, watching her charge hawk-eyed, had to admit herself defeated. If ever there was such a thing as natural goodness, it existed in this child. When Anna was eight years old, the gods tilted their cornucopia over the Grzynskis once again, and in the spring of 1907, the Countess gave birth to a son, whom they christened Peter. The baby was enchanting, blue-eyed, blonde as butter, firmly and delectably fat. The Count and Countess, who had longed for a son, were ecstatic. Friends and relations flocked to congratulate, and old Nianka, the ferocious Georgian wet-nurse with her leather pouch containing the mummified index finger of Saint Nino, filled the house with her mumbling jubilation. Seeing this, Miss Pinfold moved closer to the Countess Anna, as did Mademoiselle Leblanc and Fräulein Schneider, and the phalanx of tutors and grooms and servants who surrounded the little girl, 
waiting for jealousy and tantrums. They waited in vain. To Anna, the baby was a miracle of which she never tired. She had to be plucked from his side at bedtime and would be found in her nightdress at dawn, kneeling beside the cot and telling the baby long and complex stories, to which he listened eagerly, his head pressed against the wooden bars. Love begets love. As he grew, Pietya followed his sister everywhere, and his cry of, Wait for me, Anushka, in lisping Russian, in treating English, or fragmented French, echoed to the birch forests round Grasbaya, along the tamarisk fringed beaches of the Crimea, through the rich dark rooms of the palace in Petersburg. And Anna did wait for him. She was to do so always. As she moved from the idyll of her childhood into adolescence, Anna still...